on April 4th this year, I was at New York Criminal Court in downtown Manhattan, covering the arraignment of former President Donald Trump for the Washington Post. And people were angry. He can use this to wipe his crocodile tears and wipe his ass because he's a murderer. And his white supremacy should be on trial. Dry your fucking tears because we know you and your supporters are full of it. There were plenty of angry Trump supporters in attendance too. Even disgraced Republican Congressman George Santos showed up, who had no obvious reason for being there other than presumably to press the flesh with Trump's anti-establishment base, having become radioactive toward pretty much every other political constituency in the country. Mr. Santos, are you concerned about any legal jeopardy of your own? We support the president. Leave him alone. Why are you here, bitch? Yeah. Why are you here, Leave Mr. Him Santos? Alone. Why are you here, sir? Why are you here? Because yeah. I'm a reporter. You're an American. Get the fuck up out. Mr. Santos, are you concerned about any legal jeopardy befalling yourself out of any of this, sir? Um. He was right to be unsure. By May 9th, four weeks after he showed up at Trump's arraignment, Congressman George Santos caught a 13-count indictment from federal prosecutors, alleging wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and lying to Congress. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I would like the opportunity for some of you guys to ask some questions in an orderly fashion, and we'll start right here. Go ahead, Rachel. Why would you apply for unemployment benefits when you had a job making $120,000 a year? And here's how he tried to spin it to the press. It's a witch hunt because it, it, it makes no sense that in four months, four months, five months, I'm indicted. You have Joe Biden's entire family receiving deposits from nine, nine family members receiving money from foreign, from foreign destinations into their bank accounts. It's been years of exposing. A lot of you here have reported on them, and yet no investigation is launched into them. And this guy's not only still sitting and voting in the House of Representatives after the Republicans blocked an attempt to have him removed, but he says he's running for re-election. A lot of reaction this evening to Republican Representative George Santos' announcement that he will run for re-election. This despite the investigations and scandal over the lies he told to win his way into office. And that clumsy attempt at deflection Santos offered to the press gang on the day he was booked under intense pressure from hard-right Republicans in the House, Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now launching an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. McCarthy said just two weeks ago that there would need to be a vote for this, but tonight now saying he's launching it, no vote. And while I was happy to have gotten an um out of Santos that day he showed up to grandstand at the Trump arraignment, the question that still rings in my ears came from an American reporter who I didn't recognize. That bizarre day at New York criminal court that occurred only blocks from ground zero, the site of not only the most atrocious attack on America ever conducted, but also the scene of some of the country's most iconic demonstrations of unity and support, was emblematic of what has been going on in American politics from long before that day and ever since. It's a circus. And as America ambles towards a presidential election rematch in 2024, that it appears very few voters actually want to happen, 
It's hard to think of a moment when the country was more in need of some new blood and leaders with an eye toward reconciliation. And some are beginning to emerge. Turned out a Minnesota Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips, who might in fact be able to answer a question he's given some energy to. Are you going to run for president against Joe Biden? Well, Major, I have not decided yet. Today's guest is Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips, a third-term Democrat who entered politics after an exceptionally successful career in the private sector and who's made his brand in Congress one of bipartisan reform. Recently, he made headlines for urging Democratic colleagues who were well-positioned to run to challenge President Biden for the nomination for the 2024 election. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of J.P. Morgan Chase. Congressman Phillips and I sat down at his congressional offices in D.C. on Wednesday to talk about his desire to move America's political dialogue onto a more constructive footing. And we kicked our discussion off talking about his career before landing in Washington. Well, good morning, Congressman Phillips. Thank you so much for having me into your offices here in Washington, D.C. this morning. And the focus of our discussion today is going to be about the American political landscape. Um, We're going to focus on something that's been a core part of your political career, which is opportunities for cooperation uh, and an effort to try and move through some of the partisan noise, which is racking the legislative process. But before we get into all that, I'd love to begin with a little bit of background on your career in the private sector uh, and what you did before you became a politician. Sure. Well, uh, let me start going way, way back. Uh, I was born on Richard Nixon's inauguration day, January 20th, 1969. And sadly, I lost my birth father, uh, Artie Peffer, in the Vietnam War. Uh, I was just six months old. Uh, my mother was 24 and widowed. And uh, we lived with my great-grandparents in St. Paul, Minnesota, for the first two years of my life. And in a stroke of good fortune, I was adopted by a wonderful dad. My mom remarried, and I was brought into an extraordinary family. Uh, uh, my father, Artie, had no money, had to uh, use an ROTC scholarship to attend the University of Minnesota. Uh, my adopted father, Eddie Phillips, uh, came from a family of great success. And I started my life kind of having lived on both sides of advantage, which uh, in, in no small way illuminates a lot of my work to this day. And I was brought up in a family business. We had a fifth-generation distilling business, Phillips Distilling. I always aspired to work for it. My dad said, no way. Had to go make my mistakes elsewhere first, uh, which I did after graduating college. Uh, pursued my MBA after I joined the family business. Ended up running it uh, after many, many years. And I always believed in collaboration and innovation and found uh, that some of the best ideas came from the most unlikely places and not from the executive tables and conference rooms, but uh, from the people who worked in our warehouses and on the production line. And that was a lesson learned. Uh, the other one was my great-grandfather, Jay Phillips, you know, taught me that business was a means to an end. And the end was not to aggregate as much wealth as humanly possible, rather to share as much as humanly possible uh, with the people and communities uh, that make success a possibility. So those are kind of the, you know, that's kind of the core ethos of, of what I learned. Um, we introduced Belvedere Vodka in 1994, which became a wonderful success. We sold to LVM8. I've heard of that one. You have heard of that one? Good. <laughs> in moderation, I hope. Uh, and I'll tell you, the lesson we learned from that, Jack, was when you have categories with two large competitive brands, in that case it was Absolute and Stoli Vodka, they tend to fight each other to the bottom. And it creates an opportunity to introduce a product or a brand that is elevated 
above that fray. That's why Belvedere succeeded, created a new category, luxury vodka. So we took that same lesson, the same template, and applied it to ice cream. You had Ben and Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs doing the exact same thing, and we introduced Talenti Gelato, uh, applied that same template, and created yet a new category in ice cream, luxury gelato. It was only a dollar more. Uh, Belvedere was $25, but they were the most premium luxury brands in the country and afforded consumers throughout America and actually the world to buy the same product that superstars, celebrity, and titans of industry had in their own homes. And that was affordable luxury, we called it. So those were some lessons learned. We sold uh, Talenti to uh, Unilever, and that was my business career. And I watched the 2016 election with my family, was very disappointed by the outcome. But what really affected me was my daughter's reaction the next morning. Uh, Daniela and Pia were 18 and 16, and um, I saw tears in their eyes, you know, fear in their faces the next morning. And I sat at the breakfast table and I promised them that I would do something. I'd raise them to be participants, not observers. And I thought that if there was ever time in my life to apply the important lessons from business to our political uh, industry, if you will, uh, it was then. And I ran for Congress and here I am. Here you are. Do you see many parallels between that lower customer experience that comes from a duopoly and the political alternatives on offer to the American electorate at the moment? Indeed. I'm glad you used that word duopoly. That's, that's the analogy, uh, whether it was Stoli and Absolute or Ben and Jerry's and haagen uh, Now we have Democrats and Republicans using the same playbook, trying to keep others out. Uh, uh, it, both brands in this case want to maintain the status quo. God forbid there be a tough competitor. And I think the industry is ripe and in need of the same type of disruption uh, that in this case we did with Belvedere and Talenti. And I think the country is begging for alternatives. I think competition makes products, services, outcomes better and provides better value. And uh, this political industrial complex uh, to which we are subject in the United States of America is one that I think needs to be disrupted thoughtfully and methodically uh, and expeditiously. Mm. Well, let's talk about your foray into applying that logic into American politics. So when you were elected the first time, Michigan's third congressional district, I don't believe, had been blue for 60 years. Yeah, Minnesota, Minnesota's. Oh, sorry, uh, sorry. Yeah, that's right. Hey, you know, people confuse the two all the time, <laughs> which really offends Minnesotans. Especially Australians who wrote M-I in their notes. And we're, you know, we're both home to Great Lakes, so it's, it's kind of one and the same. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. No, no but, problem. So since that time, your margins have improved. Um, you've become more popular in your electorate. And I've noted that that's particularly seems to be occurring within the business community. Um, and I've noted some of the roles you've had in terms of advocating for small business in Congress. Typically, those sort of groups are drawn more easily towards the other side of the aisle. So what is it that you've been saying to small business owners that gets them to keep asking you back? that gets them to include you in the conversation in the same way as they would a politician who's just going to show up and say, I'm going to cut your taxes? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's a great question because I think about it every day almost. Um, I really started my career in sales as a sales trainee, uh, uh, someone who would fill in for the older sales reps when they were out of town or, or sick. And I would take their sales routes uh, through northern Minnesota or South Dakota or North Dakota in my area. And I learned that not every door is open to you. And sometimes you have to pound hard. And most importantly, you got to listen. And the best sales approaches I ever discovered were started with listening. And uh, that's the very lesson that I apply to politics. Uh, my campaign slogan was everyone's invited. Mm. I, I don't care about people's affiliations. My goodness. If, if in business you cared about what people thought, 
uh, you'd lose half your customers. Have you found that people care about your affiliations? Sure they do. Mm. That's their preconception. Yeah. And I think if there's a disease that's afflicting a, a broad part of the world right now, it's preconception, stereotypes. Uh, you find it in the form of racism, anti-Semitism, anti-anyism. And I think that's my mission right now is to remind people uh, that what you see on the surface may not always be the case. And we have to open our hearts and minds. That's true in business. It's true in politics. Uh, that's true for human beings. And that's my methodology. Uh, I gather people whenever I can. I, I convene people. I think there's a reason that I was named the most bipartisan member of the entire House, Senate, and all 50 governors. It's an ethos. It's a way of doing things that I believe there's not just an appetite for, but a distinct need for as well. And the fact that I come from the business world, yeah. I think is is comforting to those who are operating their own businesses. They know I've been through that. Uh, they know they know I understand the challenges. And as a Democrat, I don't find it mutually exclusive to either support labor or business. I think they're actually mutually mandatory. Yeah. And the best businesses that I know are ones that take very good care of their employees and their customers. And I think that's a lesson that both Democrats and Republicans could um, learn by. For sure. How would you assess the current moment then in terms of, you know, how divided you feel the American electorate is and, you know, versus pick a time, maybe versus the 2020 election or whatever? Um, you know, it, it's, it's very difficult given um, the way that some parts of the media are deliberately trying to stoke division. And you've talked a lot about that for, to, to get a real handle on what American people are feeling now. So in your conversations with constituents, but also I'm sure people stop you in the street. I mean, what's your sense about how ready the American electorate is to take on a more positive, constructive tone, like the one that you're putting out? Well, I'll tell you a story that I think will illuminate my answer better than I could describe it. Uh, but let me start by saying that I believe we have an angertainment industry, angertainment, uh, designed, crafted uh, to divide us, uh, taking advantage of the human condition that is far more drawn to what might uh, make us afraid or concern us because we're programmed to keep ourselves safe. Uh, I've seen so many journalists, networks, media organizations try to enhance their good stories. Uh, and much to their chagrin, they don't attract a lot of eyeballs. So I think we have to recognize that, that there's an appetite for the fear-mongering because it works, sadly. But conversely, you know, I've seen firsthand because of uh, our mission to bring people together that anything is possible. And we do a series back home, Jack, called Common Ground. We bring six Democrats and six Republicans together uh, in our district, facilitate, facilitated by a wonderful organization called Braver Angels. I would ask anybody who wants to help bridge these divides to take a look at them. Uh, they facilitate a two and a half hour session. We break bread. I think doing this over food always makes a big difference. People tell a little bit of their life stories, get to know each other, and then we talk policy. At the end of this two and a half hour session, we go around the table and everyone takes 30 seconds to reflect on what they uh, got out of the session. And we had an experience recently uh, in which a, a young woman, Emily, uh, looks across the table at Dave and says, you know, Dave, when you drove up in your F-150 with the Trump sticker, I almost got back in my car in the parking lot and drove off. I could barely get myself to walk in the building, uh, thinking how miserable I'd be sitting at a table with you. And she says, but, you know, I got to tell you, you're a good guy, and I really learned from you today, and I want to thank you. So it gets around the table to Dave, and Dave looks at Emily and says, Emily, when you drove up in your Prius, I wanted to run it over. And I'm glad I didn't because you're a cool woman, and I learned from you as well. And at that moment, Emily and Dave stood up and hugged each other. And here you had a bleeding heart liberal, 
a diehard Trumper, antagonistic from the very beginning of the session, who hugged it out uh, at the end of this. And I, th I thought to myself, if this is the only legacy I leave in my entire career in Congress, however long that might be, that it made it worthwhile. And it demonstrated that if they can do it, uh, everybody can be an Emily and a Dave. So I think we are less divided than angertainment would have us believe, but the massive majority of Americans and world citizens who feel the same have an obligation to take some steps and do something about it. And the silence is both deafening and um, dangerous. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I've noted just anecdotally a bunch of stuff which which seems to support your observation there, right? The town where my wife grew up in New Jersey um, for the first time ever just had a huge change of local government at the midterms. It's always been a very Republican-dominated local government um, because of some things that they were doing uh against the community's interests. Um, their response when they got sprung was to carpet bomb the town with uh, flyers decrying a woke takeover of the local camp, and they lost. And the community's happy about it. Um, and, you know, to me, it's just a small example of uh, that I saw in a local community where I do think there is a latent interest in trying to get away from some of this stuff that we just don't hear so much about in the big sort of, or from the big media outlets. Let's talk about... Uh, a bunch of issues that are currently facing um, Congress and the U.S. people. Um, but what I really want to focus in on each of these is is trying to understand where some of the common ground is, where you can do your thing, basically. Um, and unfortunately, the first issue is, is is probably one where it's going to be hard to find middle ground, but it's the latest hyper-partisan congressional initiative to dominate the news cycle. So yesterday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy opened up an impeachment investigation into President Biden surrounding the actions of his son Hunter's business dealings whilst he was vice president. And it's fairly obvious to everyone that this is being driven from some of the far right of the party and that they effectively have a gun to Speaker McCarthy's head. In fact, I think Matt Gates actually said in the House yesterday that the only option was for the Speaker to become, and I quote, fully compliant with what he demanded and what he's demanding is an impeachment. So that tells you quite a lot. But you spent four years on the House Ethics Committee uh, and have been very vocal in the past about the need for more transparency from elected officials on managing their personal financial conflicts. Uh, in fact, in May, you wrote in the Daily Beast that real and perceived patterns of self-enrichment have profoundly damaged Americans' trust in their elected leaders, and we must raise the standards of ethical behaviour for all public officials. So in light of all that, is Speaker McCarthy's investigation warranted? I think the investigation of any public official, uh, when there's an accusation, even a tiny bit of smoke, is generally warranted because it is a core responsibility of those in public office to uh, follow the money, uh, no, matter, no matter where it might lead. Um, with all that said, and by the way, I, I do, I, I, I do believe that our core mission should be um, enhancing Americans' trust and faith in government. And you, in my remarks that you just, you just read, the key word is perception. You know, sometimes it is the perception of misdoing and uh, unethical behavior that is more destructive than the reality. And I think there is a sense that of most of the American public that politicians are corrupt. I think that's unfair, by the way. I, I don't believe uh, that that's true. I think the overwhelming majority of elected officials in the United States uh, are ethical, principled, and decent people. And I mean that on both sides of the aisle. Do we have rotten apples? Absolutely. Are they on both sides of the aisle? Yes. 
In the case of President Biden, you know, I think at this point, all I've seen uh, uh, in the data and the evidence is all he can be accused of is being a father. And for those listening to this podcast, uh, myself included, you know, I'm a dad. Uh, I know uh, the challenge sometimes when you think your children have done wrong, uh, but your love for them transcends. I think Joe Biden is guilty of love, uh, not corruption, uh, not unethical behavior, and certainly not illegal behavior. All that said, if they have evidence, I wish they'd present it. Right. Now, you know, I've talked to a dozen of my GOP colleagues, Jack, a dozen, who all, some quietly and a couple publicly, have said, I've not seen one thing that would warrant an impeachment inquiry. And that says a lot. Well, that was going to be my next question, that you're probably one of the Democrats who has a better feel for how the broader Republican caucus feels about this. Um, and, and you've already answered it. And I'll tell you tell a little, another great little anecdote just to show how just darn human we are. At about 9.15 last night, I had to run to the grocery store because we just got back in town after six weeks. And I found one of my GOP colleagues uh, at the Whole Foods Market, of all places, which I gave him a little hard time about. Uh, and we had a great conversation, you know, in, in the, uh, in the uh, cracker section of Whole Foods, right, for about 15 minutes, talking about this, talking about the need to get together, talking about the need to establish more groups uh, that break bread and get to know each other. And we talked about this very issue. Uh, and it's happening all the time, and there's a significant element of this Congress that thinks this is nonsensical, it's a distraction, and we're now using impeachment uh, as a political weapon uh, rather uh, than a process uh, for which it was designed. But with all that said, and I have to be really clear, uh, if there is some evidence that indicates there may be more to this than meets the eye, A, I want to see it, and B, I'll do what a lot of my colleagues last time didn't do, which is assess it objectively, uh, and if necessary, um, uh, do what you have to do when the evidence says someone's guilty. Yeah, you'll view it on its merit. Mm -hmm. But right now, I don't see that. Yeah. So if we pivot now to look at the economy, um, obviously a very hot talking point at the moment, but I want to approach it from a slightly um, different angle, personal to you. So reading headline US economic data has become an increasingly fraught exercise um, over the last few years. That a lot of the traditional correlations between growth, employment, monetary and fiscal policy have kind of broken down. So my question to begin is a simple one. How do you think the US economy is doing right now? Well, the US economy, according to the macro numbers, is doing quite well, surprisingly well. Uh, but that's for the five, top 5% five and economists to talk about the macro numbers. What matters in economics is not what's real, but how people feel. And if there's one political lesson I've learned in this job in the last five years, that's what—that's the measure uh, of, that politicians, that's the metric, if you will, which is hard to assess. It's more subjective than objective. But I don't think people feel the economy is strong. And frankly, I understand. And if you look at this quite objectively, it's not about uh, job growth, uh, uh, GDP, uh, unemployment rates. It's about how people feel when they look at their bank accounts and when they look at their monthly outflows. And if you turn back the clock just a few years ago, former President Donald Trump put his name on the very checks that we sent to people to keep them afloat, PPP and direct payments to people during COVID. They got money into the banks. Uh, they stopped spending. There was nothing to spend money on. And people for the first time saw their bank accounts um, go up significantly. Many people had more money in their bank accounts than at any time in their lifetimes. Now turn up the clock. And the economy was literally stalled during that time. But people saw money in their accounts. 
Now, the economy is actually humming. I think of the OECD countries where uh, the fastest growing, our GDP is higher than it was pre-COVID, our unemployment lower. Uh, if anything, we've got a labor crisis. We have more jobs open than we have labor supply. But people look at their bank accounts. They have less money. They go to the grocery store. Prices are higher. Uh, they fill up their gas tank. They pay more. Uh, their mortgage payments, or anybody buying a house now surely knows, have gone up considerably. So I understand on a micro level, it's tougher. So two things can be true at once. The economy is quite strong. Uh, at a micro level, people are concerned. And I think politicians, instead of trying to stake their claims, should acknowledge both. And we should be doing more of that. Yeah. And the next question I'm about to ask you is an unfair one. I love unfair questions. Because Noam Chomsky and Joe Stiglitz have you know, written uh, 10x war and peace trying to answer this question. But how do you address that trickle-down problem? How do you turn headline economic growth and sound monetary and fiscal management into that level of security and the feeling of personal safety and wealth that individuals aren't feeling at the moment? I, I believe it starts with better listening. Uh, I, I'm disappointed that this um, political system, uh, despite being a representational form of governance, really doesn't listen as much as it needs to. And when it does, it listens much more intently to those of means and those of access yep. than it does to those of, of great need. And that's true of both Democrats and Republicans. When you have a system that is so reliant on money fueling campaigns, and when you have uh, my colleagues spending 10,000, that's right, 10,000 hours per week collectively raising money, you can imagine how little time they have to do what I propose we have to do more of, which is get out and listen. Uh, and I'm the only one in Congress, Jack, that takes no PAC money of any kind, no, so no special interest money, no lobbyist money, and nor do I give or receive money from my fellow members of Congress, and I don't have a leadership PAC. I'm a really unique, and I don't do call time. You're not the only person who says they do that, though. Uh, yeah, well, I don't, and that's unique, mm. and that's part of the problem. I think if we would listen, and there was an incentive not to congregate with those of great means, mm. because, of course, when you're raising money, who do you raise it from? Those who have it. As a result, I think we now have Trumpism in no small part because people feel disenfranchised, unheard, uncared for. And Donald Trump, from the hospitality business, saw an opportunity uh, mm. to give voice to these people. Yeah. Uh, he's a strange messenger, I'll confess. But he did it in a way that I think all politicians should be paying attention to. Look at where he holds his rallies. Mm. It's not in the big cities. It's in outlying areas. So when we go back to your question about economics, uh, we have to listen. And then, I, so what do you, what's the solution? Identify the items that uh, concern people, their housing costs, you know, their food costs, their childcare costs, uh, their tax burden, whatever that might be. Uh, I think we Democrats actually have some really good solutions. We're good with product, I would argue, generally, to address these issues, but our packaging is really weak. Conversely, I would argue the Republican uh, Party uh, doesn't have a lot of product, but their packaging is, is terrific. Oh, Looks good when you open the box. Yeah. They wrap it real good is another way to look at it. Well, and that's and that's kind of, you identify precisely the point that I'm trying to zero in on here, right? Which is that a lot of, you know, constituents in your district who previously have been um, attracted to some of, say, Donald Trump's rhetoric on the campaign trail in previous elections, um, you know, naturally should probably be more uh, magnetized towards the sort of politics that you're talking about, but they're not. And that to me feels like a branding problem um, that the Democrats have. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit later in terms of democratic um, strategy. But before that, 
I'd love to pivot to foreign policy. So let's start with Ukraine um, being the most obvious um, issue in that space at the moment. So America, I think, has done an outstanding job of uh, providing direct support to Ukraine um, and rallying NATO around sort of a uniform rejection of Putin's illegal invasion. Um, some in Congress, particularly on the opposite side of the aisle from you, are now vocally advocating for America to spend less on supporting the Ukrainian war effort. Do you think that's a good idea? No, I, I don't think it's a good idea. But do I understand uh, why some feel that uh, it doesn't feel right to share tens of billions of dollars uh, with a foreign nation when we have people sleeping on streets and kids going hungry uh, and people struggling with their health care bills, going broke uh, because of health challenges? Sure. And I think once again, two, in fact, not once again, almost always two things can be true at once. This is not binary. Uh, the people that call for reducing spending are what they're really saying is we should be taking care of our own first uh, in many cases. And I, I agree with that. Now, conversely, you know, this is an existential threat. You know, um, democracy, freedom, uh, self-determination, uh, I think are core American values that we have a responsibility to support uh, and defend. Uh, in the case of Vladimir Putin, I think you know, the evidence is quite clear. Uh, he's a threat to the entire world. Uh, and what President Biden has done to uh, you know, re consolidate uh, the allies, uh, to bring people back together. Uh, of course, a few years ago, we were really risking a complete erosion of the Western alliance. He's done so remarkably. I'd like to see our allies uh, share more so that the burden on us would be less. Uh, but yeah, we have a responsibility to see this to the end. And I say that also, it's not just about Ukraine. I, I hope people recognize this is about something far more broad. The Iranians are watching, the North Koreans are watching, the Chinese are watching. And the way that we conduct ourselves, uh, our ability to um, stay in the fight, literally, uh, will be assessed. Because over the last 40, 50 years, I think the perception of American resolve uh, has been compromised. And I think for good reason. This might reestablish it, and uh, I think that's an important at this stage in world history, considering the threats that we face. And Europe knows that if Putin succeeds with Ukraine, uh, he's already named some of the other countries uh, that I think he would target next. Uh, and I think this is the time to stop it. You know, we didn't do that in the late 1930s, and the world should be remembering right now. It's interesting. I, I agree with you. And also, I was offered a, an additional perspective, which I found quite persuasive recently by a gentleman named Mick Mulroy, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for the Middle East. Um, but prior to that, he, he spent 20 years as a ground branch operator in the agency. So he's seen the front and the back end of uh, international foreign policy, shall we say. But what he said to me was, okay, so what does it cost so far? And I think the number, at least when he was quoting, it was 60, billion. He said, how much do you think an aircraft carrier costs? I said, I don't know. He said, about $60 billion. He said, do you know how many of them we've got? I said, no. He said, 11. He goes, the Russian army's forces have been depleted based on the US intelligence community's estimates by 55-0% in terms of the, the, he said, this is the best return on investment that the defense budget has ever got for anything anywhere. <laughs> Which I, you know, I think is a is an important point to introduce as well. It's not just charity; it is uh, it is confronting an adversary, yeah. and it's sad. I mean, you know, what you just shared, both the numbers, you know, the cost in human life, 
uh, is tragic by any measure, uh, but there's no question. What has also been exposed is a Potemkin village uh, that Russia really is. And, and I got to tell you, um, I'm as concerned about a post-Putin Russia as I am about a Putin Russia. The brain drain, uh, it could be a failed nation by any measure, uh, is, is staggering. Mm. Uh, the loss of life is staggering. And uh, I think we have to be mindful uh, of what's next as we have to be around the world. Uh, but to your point, uh, return on investment is a sad way to look at a war, but you're right. And if, you know, if we endeavor to protect democracies and self-determination, it has been a good return on investment. But again, I, I, I'm not going to say that without closing with the fact that we still have a lot of Americans who could use that aid. And if you think about what that 60, it's, I think it's getting closer to $100 billion. If you think about how that could be deployed uh, in the United States of America, let alone to help human beings around the world, it does beg the question of how we prioritize a nation that spends almost a trillion dollars a year on national defense, defending some people who are literally going hungry and sleeping in the streets. And why do we not have a more significant conversation about that? And I think the answer is pretty clear. Uh, those that benefit from that expendi uh, expenditure uh, have really significant operations and lobbying efforts uh, and access here in Washington. Mm -hmm. Those that represent um, the struggling in America don't. And that's why this system is not working the way that I believe it needs to. All very good points. And a, a very interesting question about the risks that could arise from a post-Putin Russia as well. I guess the canary in the coal mine will be whether they let Navalny out of jail, right? And if they don't, then it might just be another chapter of the same. Um, so if we pivot now to look at Afghanistan, um, you mentioned at the start of the interview that uh, your father, U.S. Army Captain Arthur Peffer, was killed in Vietnam in 1969. Um, in March this year, you traveled to Vietnam and buried your congressional pin at the place where he died. Why did you do that? Uh, it had been almost a, a lifelong mission of mine. Uh, when, when my mother told me about my birth father when I was a young boy, it affected me in ways I couldn't understand at the time, but it was uh, discomforting and disjointing. And the more I discovered about my father, uh, uh, the more I wanted to know him as much as I could. Every picture, every story, uh, any element that had uh, he had ever touched. I have a little sh little shrine in my office to both of my fathers, uh, including my dad, Artie's hockey glove, as an example. Um, I used to spend uh, evenings at my grandmother Ruth's, uh, Artie's mother's house. She'd make me matzo ball soup, teach me how to play piano, and tell me stories about my dad. And whenever she opened the door and greeted me, she would start crying. And you know these left really big marks on me. And I'd always wanted to go to Vietnam. It was frightening, uh, both the country itself, but also the mission. And through its strange twist of fate, um, the, the door opened to go in March. And I'd done my homework to identify where the crash had happened. He died in a Huey helicopter crash on July 25th, 1969. I uh, did my homework. Um, and uh, the Vietnamese uh, hosts, military hosts, were gracious uh, and uh, escorted me along with some friends to the site. And it was a remarkable experience. And when we got there, we didn't know exactly where this crash had happened. And uh, a man on a motorbike comes down the path that we were standing on. We were in his way. And our interpreter engaged him in conversation. I asked the interpreter to ask him if he might know anybody in the area that would have known where this helicopter may have gone down 54 years ago. And the man says, uh, I know because I was five years old. I lived right here and I scavenged the crash site site the next day with my brothers. So he led us to the place that had happened. 
and on the path to the crash site uh, in this now coffee plantation, growing coffee beans exclusively, there were two little red peppers sitting in the path. And I picked them up and one of my friends reminded me that in German, pe yeah, pe pepper is pepper. Uh, so some, str I always like to say coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous. And this was an example <laughs> of that. Anyway, we had a beautiful ceremony. I honored all those that died in the crash that day. I was accompanied by a, the daughter of a North Vietnamese fighter pilot whose father survived the war and spent the rest of his life repatriating the remains of both Vietnamese and American soldiers. And my U.S. military escort, uh, Major Wei Trong, uh, was a Vietnamese-born uh, young boy, emigrated to the United States, was raised in Minnesota, my home state. And here he was the guy that brought me to the site. It was just a remarkable experience. And then to wrap it up, many have asked me, did it give me closure? And I've said time and time again, it was just the opposite. You know, it was an opening you know, where he took his last breath. You know, I took kind of my first. So it was a beautiful experience. And then I got home from this trip and another strange twist of fate led me to the one surviving uh, person from that crash in 1969, Tom Devereaux. His wife invited me to his 80th birthday in Colorado. And I went and I got to give him a hug. And it made for a remarkable year, uh, one that was 54 years in, uh, in coming. That's brilliant. I did see some footage of when you were there on um, one of the TV shows, did a grab on it. And um, I, can, I can see why your grandmother used to burst into tears when you arrived at the front door. Mate, you are a chip off the old block, as we'd say in Australia. It's amazing. I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, identical, but that's a, it's, it's such a fabulous story. Um, so you have personal experience of the terrible cost of war, right? And recently I've been reporting on Afghanistan, the withdrawal and, and what has happened subsequent to that. And through that, I've spent a lot of time with many American service members who've returned from that theater and also many Afghans who fought alongside um, U.S. service members and indeed people from Australia, uh, Britain and elsewhere, their emotions toward the withdrawal and the subsequent takeover of their country by the Taliban range from heartbreak to outrage, but not one of them says it was a good idea. Earlier this year, General Petraeus, the four-star commander of the surges in Iraq and Afghanistan, told me, and I'll quote him, that the U.S. has failed a really profound moral obligation end quote, in leaving Afghan partners to the hands of the Taliban, effectively. The country's now in the grip of a humanitarian crisis. Women have been uniformly disenfranchised across the board. That's far more than 50% of the population in Afghanistan for terrible, sad, and obvious reasons. And what service members say to me is they ask, what was all the sacrifice for? And so my question is whether or not you think it was a good decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and then following from that, what can be done now to help ameliorate the harm that's come from this decision? Well, let, let me answer your first question, uh, which is, was it a good decision? And I have to say, ultimately, no. Uh, it's one that I struggle with because I don't like endless wars. Uh, I don't want our troops deployed in places where we don't have a clear mission, uh, one that can succeed. But I do think uh, the abandonment uh, of Afghanistan uh, is both tragic, uh, uh, acutely tragic, but also uh, perhaps even more so because it affects the most important commodity that we have in the United States of America vis-a-vis -vis world peace and our relationships, and that is trust. And when people lose faith in you or trust in you, 
um, it's the consequences are dangerous and uh, and has a very long tail. And I think what you just shared uh, with those with whom you've spoken about the decision, I'm not surprised. Especially service members uh, who committed themselves to that to that work, families who lost loved ones in that work, uh, and the tragedy of those now left behind, especially those that helped us. I live in Minnesota, where we have one of the largest Hmong communities. Uh, the Hmong. Uh, supported our efforts in Vietnam some you know, 50 years ago uh, and are a vibrant, uh, extraordinary uh, mosaic in Minnesota's community. Uh, and you know, we made an effort to make sure that we brought them over uh, to fulfill our responsibility. Uh, I'm afraid that in Afghanistan that has not yet occurred to its appropriate end. We have a lot more work to do. A lot of my staff time is still dedicated to extracting people who um, deserve to be helped, even though this is not necessarily uh, the core responsibility of a congressional office, I would argue a disproportionate number of us are working on cases right now to help people get out. Now, with all that said, I also understand why uh, both President Trump initiated this and President Biden fulfilled it, uh, that our missions become quite uh, ambiguous at times. But we've seen the consequences of that exit entirely. Conversely, in Syria, we still maintain a, a modest troop presence. And it is, to some degree, keeping the peace in, in northern Syria. Uh, I think we should have done the same thing in Afghanistan. Uh, Lebanon in numbers, try to maintain security, uh, to protect women and uh, those under persecution, because the absence of that small force changed everything. It closed the spigot, is what it did. Closed the spigot, right. Right, and it's going to be very difficult for that uh, government and that military to survive with. Exactly. And, that's, and your second question is, what do we do about it? I, look at I, I like whenever I point out a problem, I'd like to have a solution. I don't have one for this. You know, this is awfully complicated. All we can do right now is work with uh, neighboring countries uh, to the degree that we can to provide refuge for those that need exits, uh, to encourage the Taliban to uh, treat their people with humanity and decency and competency. Uh, but it's not looking good. And uh, it's it's tragic. But to to end this part of the conversation, I, the United States has to really have a, a, a conversation about uh, our objectives uh, and our strategies around the world. We have a lot of resources, a lot of human beings, a lot of uh, initiatives and missions, uh, oftentimes focused on areas that probably need them less and ignoring areas that need them the most. And uh, it's time for, I think, a, a real tough conversation about that. And we will move on from Afghanistan now, but there's one other thing I wanted to ask you, which is... Um, you might, you'll probably understand why uh, I insist. You mentioned the Hmong Laotian community. There's a similar group of Afghans who worked in a secret side of the war, which is what the Hmong did in Laos, right? Who are here in America now. There's 12,000 of them who are yet to have had all of their immigration statuses approved. And they recently sent an open letter to Congress, um, which you, you may have seen. Does that feel like a policy area that could be addressed by? people like you in Congress to try and help this group of people that is in America already, who perhaps hasn't been dealt with in the, in the right manner upon arriving here after being evacuated. Absolutely. A, a great example of where we still can make some amends mm -hmm. uh, by expeditiously um, approving these visas or immigration papers. And uh, for, for a few reasons, one, uh, one of which is it's the right thing to do for those who support our efforts and whose lives would have been at risk. Uh, B, it's the humane thing to do for any human being that's uh, in limbo like that. And C, 
when I reflect on some of the challenges facing the United States and its economy, there's a workforce shortage right now. And we have thousands of people who are able, willing, and interested in pursuing the American dream, want to go to work. And instead of making it easier for them uh, to get jobs legally, we make it harder. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense. And I've learned that they're- Most of them want to join the American military. And how about that? By the way, on, on my father Artie's helicopter, there was a young man named David Valdez, who was a Mexican national, who had joined the U.S. Army to become an American citizen. That was the path. And he had become a naturalized citizen just a couple months before the crash. I, I think of David regularly because that is, that's the embodiment of the very people we're talking about. They want to become Americans, that want to serve this country, in many cases, embody the American spirit in ways that has been lost, I think, over many generations in this own country. And I think that's the beauty of this country is that succeeding waves of immigrants actually re-energize you know, those American principles and the American dream. So this, yes, uh, those are the very people who we should be focused on um, ensuring passage uh, and ultimately citizenship. We'll be very happy to hear that. Um, so last bit on foreign policy, but in the third theater we'll discuss, China. Obviously, a lot has been written and talked about in the last few months in particular, um, as some of the tensions between the US and China have become more overt. So let's focus on the last big change, which was the decision to ban the export of all sorts of different technology into China um, as a strategy to slow their own domestic production being built out. And at the same time, the US is investing via the CHIPS Act in bringing that sort of production of high-end semiconductors onshore in America. Do you agree with the strategy and do you think it's working? Well, this is somewhat analogous to your question about Afghanistan, strangely enough. Sorry about that. Well, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, thank you. You know, it's because it's a question of how do you, how do you resolve bad policy and bad diplomacy for generations? And it's not easy. Uh, we're paying the price for terrible mismanagement of a extraordinarily important relationship uh, that should have gone a different way, if you ask me. Uh, and again, this is a failure of Democratic and Republican administrations, I think, for many decades. Uh, we misunderstood. I think we mismanaged. Uh, and frankly, we allowed ourselves to be taken advantage of by a, a, a large country that has aspirations, not unlike our own. Uh, so with all that said, uh, I really regret uh, those failures of policy and diplomacy. Uh, as it relates to right now, I still think we are failing in the area of diplomacy. And I'll, uh, anecdotally, I'll tell you, uh, the former Chinese ambassador to the United States, who was here, I think, for a couple of years, extended many invitations to members of Congress, the administration, uh, Washington insiders to uh, break bread and do his job uh, and was turned down at almost every effort, was called back to Beijing and was appointed the foreign minister, Chinese foreign minister, uh, about a year ago, I think. And he does so, looking back at his time in the United States, as unhospitable, unfriendly, unwilling, uncaring, uh, and not interested. And he becomes the chief foreign policy minister for uh, an adversary. And hearing that story from some colleagues, um, I reached out to the new ambassador to the United States, uh, asked if he might be interested in having a small dinner with some members of Congress. Strangely enough, that dinner is tonight. I've invited many, many colleagues, uh, only a few accepted. Can you say who they are? I don't want to say, cause I think that's up to them. Uh, I understand. I had to ask though. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm thrilled to say I'm doing it because I think this is how you do better. And this is how you establish relationships 
only after which can you negotiate the hard stuff. What we tend to do with this relationship is start at a point where it's hard to, re we don't have a human relationship, you don't trust, you don't have any shared experience. It makes negotiation and resolution almost impossible. And that's why we often resort to bullets and bombs. So uh, that's a baby step. Uh, most won't do it because they don't wanna be seen going into the Chinese embassy. Uh, they know they'd be attacked politically. Uh, but I gotta tell you, if we don't invest in diplomacy, we're gonna be in big trouble because someday this ambassador might be in a senior position back in China. If anything happens, if there's a misunderstanding, you can't resolve that without a relationship. So to finish the question, you know, I think right now our policy to repatriate U.S. manufacturing back to the United States uh, not only makes sense, we should have done it decades ago. We never should have lost these enterprises. We have all the IP here, but it's, uh, COVID actually showed how losing the supply chain uh, is of great consequence. Uh, but I will also say this, I'm concerned about China because they are facing a massive economic disruption right now. Chinese, the Chinese um, citizenry uh, can't invest in ways the United States uh, citizens can. They can either put their money in a bank, which pays lower interest than inflation, so they lose money. Well, they're regulated deposit rights, yeah. And they're regulated. Mm -hmm. And so what do they do? Most have invested in real estate, which has created a massive bubble. There, the estimates are 75 million to 100 million empty dwelling units in China. I've seen them. With now, yeah, with now a declining population, a recipe for disaster domestically. Uh, President Xi has a real challenge on his hands, and I'm concerned that with domestic turmoil, economic turmoil, massive unemployment amongst youth mm -hmm. and the like, uh, we may be looking at um, some efforts to create a little bit more of a nationalistic internal mood, and we should be ready for that. Uh, because our economies are linked, uh, and so is all humanity. So that's that's how I feel about this. Mm. And I just hope in the future we can use diplomacy and relationships to prevent tragic misunderstandings, because they should be a competitor of ours, but not an enemy. Let's change tack a little. Age and term limits for American Congress people, um, or Amer American elected officials, shall we say. So in May this year, you wrote an op-ed about term limits and you specifically are focusing in on some of um, Dianne Feinstein's public health issues. Um, you used a term I hadn't heard before, uh, gerontocracy. Um, but it was one of those ones, like the first time I read kleptocracy in The Economist, I knew immediately what it meant. Um, but more recently, you've called again uh, more directly for a restrict for some for form of, of formal restriction on tenure for elected officials after some of Mitch McConnell's recent uh, episodes. What's your main point here? Well, my main point is that diversity is the driver of better outcomes in a democracy. And there is a lack of generational diversity in the United States Congress. Uh, it's clear. Uh, I think the median age of the United States is 38 years old, roughly. Uh, in the United States House, it's 57, I think. I'm 54. I'm, I'm below, I'm a youngin here in the United States Congress. And in the Senate, I think it's over 65 years old. Now, that doesn't mean we should have a median age in Congress of 38. We'd have a bunch of 25-year-olds. That's not what I'm saying. We should have some 25 and 30-year-olds. We should have more of them. Uh, but we have this culture uh, that essentially precludes younger generations from finding any space or place to serve the American public in meaningful ways. And Jack, I'll say particularly right now, uh, this is not the you know, 1820s, uh, this is the 2020s. The issues that we're facing that we have to address, AI, FinTech issues, uh, climate policy, 
these are issues in which younger generations have most, both more capacity uh, and, frankly, uh, more of a vested interest uh, than any of the older members. And I'm seeing this dearth of competency. Uh, and I'm also seeing people hanging on to these seats for dear life. Their entire identities are tied up in them. Uh, it limits space and place for new generations. Uh, in many cases, the decline in their own competency, I think, is, a, is both tragic, sad, but also undermines much of the work of Congress. And also, again, reduces faith in governance, because these are the things you see on TV with the entertainment industry. And it, people lose faith. That's a problem. So I'm not saying that we should cleanse the Congress of people of, of, of age. To the contrary, we need their wisdom. We need their experience. Uh, probably like you, I'd much rather see a doctor who has 50 years experience than one who just graduated from Harvard. That's not the point. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I've seen Nancy Pelosi is an example of someone who at age 83 is, has more energy, capacity, uh, and, um, uh, and mojo than probably any member of Congress at any age. I don't know how she does it. So this is not an age thing. The tenure thing is a problem. And I have also seen, this is the most important part, when people are term limited, if people were, uh, have a health issue, if they retire from Congress, the, their disposition changes pretty remarkably when they feel liberated and free of the shackles of party politics. Uh, John McCain was a great example of that. Uh, you could see his liberation at the end. Jeff Flake, uh, Ambassador Flake, now in Turkey, with whom I just met, a, a wonderful man. You saw his liberation. You saw Liz Cheney uh, not long ago. Uh, who knew her days were coming to an end in Congress because of politics uh, and pursued principle. Uh, I've seen the beauty in that independence, and this democracy would be so well served by having more people like that at any given time whose terms were coming to an end. And that's why I think 18-year terms are the right number, both for the Supreme Court, for the Senate, and for the House. It's long enough uh, to get to know your colleagues, to understand policy, understand process, make a difference, and then open up a seat uh, for someone new. And I'll just uh, close with this. I was an intern for Senator Patrick Leahy in 1989. Uh, I thought he was kind of old then. And I was, a, I was 19 years old or 20 years old. And I come back to Congress as a newly elected member in 2019, you know, 30 some years later, 30 years later. And Senator Leahy was one of the first to greet me. It's wild. He'd been here that long. And he's a wonderful man who did extraordinary work. I consider him a friend. He just did retire. And I don't, it's not degrading at all. I, I celebrate him. But it was an example of how in that whole time, nobody had an opportunity to run for that seat, serve the state of Vermont. We're seeing that now with Mitch McConnell, Diane Feinstein. So many people have been here so long that I think it's healthy to have more turnover. And I believe most Americans agree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is such a good point that when you have any sort of arbitrary uh, limit, that you will get a flurry of legacy building from every elected official towards the end of their term, which um, just seems like a very good way to deal with some of the deadlock. And Jack, absent that, absent that, people's core mission is to get reelected. How do you get reelected? Be a good soldier, sit down, yeah. shush up, stay in line, you know, raise your money, because if you don't, it's not, you're not going to be supported in the next election. You're going to be primaried. And that's why we have these perverse incentives that have to be addressed. And we can do it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we've got two minutes left and we didn't quite get to Democratic Party strategy. So why don't we put that to the side for uh, another discussion in the future? But I do want to ask you a fun question to finish up. 
I want to ask you about UFOs. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I'm sure that you saw uh, the gentleman, I can't recall his yeah. name, who, uh, who, who um, blew the whistle uh, on an alleged deep state conspiracy. Um, and I believe he was saying that uh, these people are a reverse engineering spacecraft. But then we got the whole gamut, right? We got the pilots who have seen it. There are congressional hearings going on. Do you think that these things in the sky come from outer space, from a from an alien civilization? Well, I'm sad to say I don't think those are uh, from other civilizations. Now, with all that said, I'm sure I'm like many listening right now. You know, who hasn't spent some time lying in bed late at night wondering if there are people like us on some other planet in some other galaxy? You know, who didn't watch Star Trek or Close Encounters? or ET and think, gosh, you know, do I want that to be true or do I not want that to be true? And I, you know, I want to know the truth. You know, I'm a member of Congress. I have access to this classified information. I've not seen anything that makes me believe. Have you looked? I've looked. You I've have? looked. I've looked. Yeah. And I haven't seen anything yet that, that uh, would, uh, would prompt me to say that I think it's true, everybody. And part of me wants to think it's true. You know, the good news is if they are, uh, they haven't tried to destroy us, as far as I know, so that's a good sign. That's why it's a lighthearted topic for the exactly. end of an interview. They don't seem to want to hurt yeah. us if they are here, but it's just a fun thing. And maybe that's a good way to on. wrap it up here. You know, that you know, you think about you know how the you know the universe can't end almost by definition. It's probably the one thing that we are not blessed with the capacity to even process, mm. which leads me to believe that uh, it would be quite a bit of hubris to think that we're the only ones. And maybe that's the sentiment to you know end my remarks, which is, we're probably not the only ones. Uh, and that's true of Americans on this earth, and it's true uh, for humanity around the globe. And if we just treated each other maybe a little bit better, uh, I think our threat is not from foreign, I mean, not from, from other galaxies. Uh, our threat is from one another. And I think people got to take some time and reach out their hands and do some high fives and hugs and break bread together, uh, whether it's uh, Republicans and Democrats or people around the globe, because we got a lot at stake and uh, I'm going to keep the faith and stay optimistic. Thank you very much for having me in, Congressman Phillips. That's it for this episode of The Intersection. As always, thanks very much for listening. I'm Jack Wright, and I'll see you again next time.